This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. This morning, we're kicking off a, a new message series called Exchange. And over the next six or eight weeks, we're going to explore what it looks like for us to trade the death that we experience in so many parts of life for the life that Jesus brings to us. Now, when we start talking about exchanges and trades, things like that, uh, there are a lot of places that our mind goes, and most of those are economic. You know, when we think of exchanging and we think of trading, we're usually thinking of some kind of economic transaction where we're exchanging goods and services for money or we're exchanging money for a product, something like that. And one of the, when I think of, of trading especially, one of those interactions that immediately comes to mind is the used car lot. Uh, when I was in seminary, I worked as a used car salesman for three weeks. Um, that was how long it took me to realize I am terrible at this and I'm going to starve and have to drop out of school. So I found another job. Uh, but in that three weeks, every stereotype I had of a used car salesman was confirmed. Um, and I realized I don't want to become. Now, I know there are Christian used car salesmen. If you sell cars, good for you. God bless you. Honor him in that. That's wonderful. The guys I worked with were not. Um, and so as they would try to teach me the tricks of the trade, I kind of realized like, oh, this is gross and I need to leave. Um, I guess I was not yet at the point in my life to stand, make a strong stand for Christ. It was just kind of like, I got to get out of here. Um, so three weeks was all I lasted. But even still, uh, when it's time for Angie or I to trade in a car, it, it just always is one of those things of like, I'm half excited and half dreading it. Excited because by the time you decide to trade in a car, you're done with yours, right? You, uh, nobody ever trades in cars they love, generally, unless you bought something you couldn't afford. But for the most part, we're going to the car lot because we've decided I've done, I'm done with this and I want something new. But we know going to the car lot, we are not going to let that salesman know that I'm done with this car. Right, your car might have more dents than straight spots, more chip paint than good paint. The inside of it, you might have had so many kids in it over the years that the bottom is just a, a collection of like calcified chicken nuggets and gushers mashed in and looks like some Jackson Pollock painting that went horribly wrong all over the base of your car. But when you get there and that dealer comes out and says, hey, so you looking for a new car? Your response is always, oh, I don't know. I mean, I really love this one. You might have a rod knocking. There might actually be flames coming out of your hood. You might roll in on two flat tires. But you are trying to sell him on the fact that this is the finest piece of machinery the United States has ever seen. And you're going to be lucky to get it. right? Because we have this understanding that going into the car trade-in experience, most likely we're getting the raw end of the deal. Right, because the, the dealer has all the power. He has all the inventory. He sets the terms. He has all these things. And so we're going in trying to get as good of a deal as we possibly can, but also understanding they've got all the power in this. Now, when it, when it comes to exchanging our death for the life of Christ, I think some of us can take that same bargaining approach. And we think, okay, I'll take what Jesus has, but I, on the one hand, I'm kind of afraid he's actually going to charge me more than I want to pay. Or I'm afraid he's going to try to bait and switch me, and it's going to be like, hey, come experience new life. And then it's like, hey, welcome to the church. Here's your denim skirt and your makeup remover, right? And so you kind of have this like, oh, that's not, right? Hey, ladies, I would be equally horrified by that, okay, on your behalf. Uh, like, nope, nobody wants that, okay? Wear your dresses, put on your makeup, glory to God. Uh, so so we've, we've got this idea at times, though. I'm like, man, if, if God is asking me to trade, he's always in the position of power. 
And, and what we need to understand, though, is he is in the position of power. He does have all the cards in his deck. We don't have anything. But he's not coming to take advantage of us. He's not trying to pull something over on us. But he's coming to give us the most incredible deal that we could ever imagine. You literally bring your nothing, and he gives you everything. So, so take it and, and flip it back to that used car analogy. And let's think of what that would look like if it was like the way Jesus exchanges our death for his life. So let's say I go down to the dealership tomorrow morning, and I've got a 13-year-old Honda Accord sitting out there in the parking lot. And my car is perfectly fine, right? It, that's just what it is. It is a 13-year-old Honda Accord. It's high mileage. It's got door dings all over the side of it because kids, um, you know, it's got some stains here and there. But for the most part, it runs good. But nobody ever, nobody ever compliments me on my car. Nobody's ever pulled up to me at a stoplight and been like, hey, what year Accord is that? Uh, like, it just doesn't happen, right? It is a perfectly anonymous car. And so I go down there, and, and I pull in the parking lot, and I, I get out, and the, the salesman comes running out the door, and he says, Chris Dow, so good to meet you. We have been waiting for you to bring in that 2006 Honda Accord for me. I was like, what? You've been, and so immediately, the alarm bells are going off. Of course you've been waiting for me. First of all, how do you know me? That's creepy. But secondly, you've been waiting for me to bring it in because you want to take advantage of me and sell me something I can't afford. Like, I know how this goes. But he says, no, 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 we, we had a sales meeting this morning. Your name came up. We started talking about your Honda and how we would just love to take that Honda and have it here on our lot. Now, I'm immediately just thinking this is garbage. Nobody, like, it's a, a fine car, but nobody goes to bed dreaming, I, I really want a 13-year-old car with 140,000 miles on it. You know, it's just not, it's not what you dream about. And, and so he says, okay, so come here, let me, let me show you. We want your Honda and we've got something for you too. Well, now I know, like, I, you know, here comes the bait and switch. And so I say, okay, well, show me. And so he, he walks me through the used car lot, which is where I always buy the car. And he starts walking me over into the new lot. And I already know, like, we're in over our head. It doesn't matter. If it's new, it's not for me, right? Like, I can't have those nice things. And, and he walks me through the cars. Then he walks me through the vans. Thank you, Jesus. And then he walks me through the SUVs. And then we get over to the, the promised land. For somebody who's got a little bit of redneck in them. It's right out by the tree, by the street. Not right. And now, now listen, here's how you know real redneck versus fake redneck. A real redneck, you're not going to look at trucks. You're going to look at pickups. Right? There's a difference. My grandpa would tell me that all the time. I don't drive a truck, I drive a pickup. Semi-truck drivers drive trucks. Anyway, so, so he takes me over there. And he doesn't take me to the ones on the lot. He takes me to the ones that they've got displayed by the street. You know, where they always have at least the three, sometimes the six-inch lift kit. They've got the big tires. They've got the black wheels. They've swapped out the exhaust from single to dual, so it's loud but not too loud. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? It's just you've lived in the city too long. I'm describing every man's dream, okay? And he says, hey, we've got this, all the bells and whistles. It's brand new. Well, I know what that truck costs, and I'm not going to buy a truck that's worth more than the first house I lived in, Right? It's just there's a moral principle there. Like, I'm not going to have a house payment for a car payment. But he says, do you want to give it a drive? I'm like, of course I do, because this is the only time I will ever drive something this nice. So we get in, we drive around town. Of course it's awesome. It does everything that I could ever want. I just feel bigger. I feel tougher. I feel stronger. I feel it, it kind of reveals some sin probably in my life and, and where I'm looking for identity in the wrong areas. But, but in this moment, I don't care. I'm just, I'm just enjoying it because I know it's a short ride. We get back to the dealership, we pull in next to my Honda Accord, 
And he says, so what do you think? I'm like, well, it's awesome, but it's not for me. I can't, like, those trucks are for people who either make more money than I do or make worse financial decisions than I do. But I know, no matter how, like, that's not, there's no way I'm driving home in that today. Because even if I do, I'm going to have to get out and be like, Angie, everything we dreamed of, we, remember, we always, you know, uh, like, it's, it's not going to work. And so I'm giving him my objections. And, and then just imagine, he says to you, hey, Chris, 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 stop, stop talking. You don't understand. Somebody came in a couple weeks ago, and they wrote us a blank check, and in the memo it said, Chris Dow, new car. And they said you could pick anything off the lot you wanted to. All you had to do, the only rule, was you had to leave your Honda Accord here. It becomes ours, and you drive off in whatever you want. Now, how quick am I going to sign those papers? Right? Some of you, you would, you, you would start thinking, well, is this a, a morally acceptable? Is this legal? Is this some drug dealer in town trying to hide some of his money? I'm not going to ask any of those questions. I'm going to sign the paper and peel out of the parking lot before that guy changes his mind. Right? And, and, and if as I'm leaving the parking lot, he says, hey, tell all your friends and family, same deal for them. We've got an endless supply of resources, and we're just giving stuff away. Well, not only am I going to appreciate what they've done, I'm going to become the number one fan and promoter of that dealership. I'm going to tell the story to everybody because now I am going to get compliments on my car, right? Because people are going to hear me and they're going to see me coming and they're going to say, hey, we're, you're a preacher. You shouldn't have a truck like that. And I'm gonna go, I know I shouldn't, but it's free. And I'm going to tell that story over and I'm going to pull up by people at Quick Trip driving their beaters and be like, look, Stop. Don't put another dollar worth of gas in that piece of junk. Just drive down there, and they'll trade you straight across. Now, if that was a reality, the church parking lot would look a whole lot better this morning. <laughs> right? Because, again, it would be all pickups, SUVs, and sports cars. All of your practicality would go straight out the window. If one of you showed up in some little hybrid, we'd be like, get out of here. You had your pick of everything, and you chose this. What's wrong with you? Get out of here with your minivans. Get out of here with, like, just get out of here with all of it. Only the best. This is what Jesus offers to us. When he says, I'm going to exchange my life for your death, he's saying, you come with your junk, and I'm going to give you my treasure. You come with your nothing, and I'm going to give you everything. You come with your bondage, I'm going to give you my freedom. You come with your career, I'm going to give you a calling. You come with your grief, I'm going to give you joy. You come with your anxiety, I'm going to give you peace. You come with your sickness, I'm going to give you healing. You come with your death, I'm going to give you resurrection. This is the trade he's making for us. And yet we're still kind of like, eh, I don't know. Really? Really? So what we're going to walk through over the next couple weeks is just what does it look like in all of these different areas? So we're going to look at some stories that Jesus told. We're going to look at some of his teachings. We're going to look at some of his examples and just see what it looks like when Jesus shows up and says, hey, let's make a deal. You give me your junk, and I'll give you my treasure. We're going to start this morning in Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at uh, an example of Jesus interacting with a man who is suffering from some horrible, horrible oppression and see how Jesus comes to exchange our bondage for his freedom. So Mark chapter 5, verse 1, it'll be here on the screens for you as well. They, meaning Jesus and the disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. 
No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, if, if we're talking about exchanging our bondage for the freedom Jesus brings, the first thing we have to acknowledge is that we are in bondage, right? And so the, the bondage that is described here in this passage is the oppression of an evil spirit, right? This guy has been completely possessed, completely overtaken. Now, you and I might not have that exact same experience, and yet we still suffer from the effects of the same sin that had, had tormented this guy. And what we see in this passage is a couple ways that we find ourselves in bondage. First of all, sin comes to us, and it is incredibly destructive. Sin ruins everything it touches. It always has an impact, and it always has an influence. And one of the lies the enemy is going to tell you is you're not in bondage because your sin isn't affecting anyone right now. You've got it under control. You're managing it. But again and again and again, the scriptures teach us sin always kills. Sin always destroys. Sin always poisons. It is never neutral. For this man in Mark 5, sin has come and it has taken his mind. It's taken his ability to interact with others. It's taken his ability to work, his ability to find joy, his ability to find peace. He is tormented. He's afflicted. Not only is sin destroying, but sin is also isolating. His sin has caused him to be cut off from his friends, his family, from others. Our sin does the same thing to us. Maybe not to the extreme that you have left home and you're living out among the tombs and in the hills and crying out at night, but it isolates you just the same. It's your sin that makes you feel alone in your marriage. You're wondering, why don't we connect like we used to? But you know in your heart it's because you're harboring this sin and your spouse can't get through that last barrier. And you're wondering, why do I feel so alone in my home group? Why do other people seem so happy? It's because you've got that sin in there that you haven't confessed and that you won't acknowledge. And so the enemy comes to us, and as the sin is in the process of destroying us, he's also telling us, you're the only one who's ever suffered this way. You're the only one who screws up like this. You're the only one who deals with this over and over and over again. And the more we believe that lie, the deeper we dive into the secrecy of our sin. The more secret our sin is, the more it isolates us, the more it separates us, the more we find ourselves incapable of making real, meaningful connections with God and with each other. This is exactly where the enemy wants. And now, now you might not wind up completely out of your home, homeless, living out in the countryside, hiding out in the cemeteries at night, and yet your sin will isolate you in ways that bring real and lasting damage to your relationships, to your job, to your school, to your hopes, to your dreams, to your mind, to your body. Sin destroys, sin isolates, and finally sin dominates. See, that this man gets to the point where his, his sin becomes his whole story, becomes his identity. He's no longer somebody's son. He's no longer somebody's husband, somebody's father, somebody's brother. He's no longer an uncle, a friend, a coworker. He is just known as the crazy man who lives in the hills, right? He's just the guy that's out there. He's the warning story that the parents in the cities tell their kids, hey, don't mess up or you'll wind up like him. His identity has become completely wrapped up in his sin. When we sin, the same thing happens to us. We begin to believe that what I do is who I am. I am the addict. Before I'm anything else in life, I'm the addict. I am the broken person. I am the abuser. I am the abused. I am the liar. I am the cheater. I am the manipulator. 
I am the one who, who can't hold a job because I lose my temper all the time. I am the one who flunks all my tests because I'm too lazy to work hard. And we start to believe these lies of this is who I am, and others will begin to place those labels on us as well. And we'll start to think, okay, this, is, this must just be who I am. And it teaches us a really important lesson that, that your sin comes to you and the enemy tries to tell you, hey, you can manage this. You can keep this under control. But sin always dominates. It's never a roommate. It's never a friend. It's never something that you can just kind of coexist with. It always comes, sin comes to be our master to rule over us. Jesus tells us in John 8, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. When we willfully engage in sinful choices, sinful lifestyles, sinful behaviors, sinful patterns of speech and action, we are placing ourselves under the power and the authority of sin. And in that space, we cannot break free on our own. We only wind up bound up and stuck. This is exactly what happens to this man. His friends, his family, they've tried everything that they can. He always breaks free until one day when Jesus shows up. You can keep reading in verse 6. It says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. So this, it's told a little out of order here. And so, so what actually happens is Jesus lands on the beach. He gets out of the boat, and he sees this man and knows instantly this man is tormented and he's afflicted. And so verse 8 actually takes place before verse 6. Jesus' first response to this man in his sin is to say, come out of him, you impure spirit. So what, he, what he's teaching us here is Jesus always moves towards us in our sin. His exchange is not something he offers from a distance. He's not saying, hey, 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 up here, up here. If you want to be free, come here. He doesn't tell the man, hey, if you want to be free, come to the boat. But he gets out, he steps on the land, he sees the man who's tormented and says, come out of him, you evil and impure spirit. That's what causes the man to run and to fall down at Jesus' feet. But we can see in his response that there are two, there's a war going on inside of him because there are two responses that he displays. The first is a response of surrender. He runs and falls on his knees in front of Jesus. It's an acknowledgement that a greater power has arrived and and he's the only one who can help me. And simultaneously, there's a response of fear that rises up. He says, please don't torture me. You've got to think, what's, what's going on here? Why is Jesus offering freedom and this man is responding in fear? And what's happening here is something that's very supernatural that we're not always comfortable with talking about in in our culture and yet continues to happen to each one of us. And until we recognize it, we're not going to find the freedom that Jesus offers. You see, when when this man falls at Jesus' feet, there is real evil living inside of him. And in that moment, as he kneels at Jesus' feet, those evil spirits are aware a greater power has just showed up. Like Jesus is here and our defeat is done. There's nothing left for us to do. And so they do the only thing that they can to try to control the situation. They inspire fear and terror in this man's heart and mind to try to get him to run away from his freedom. The same thing happens to you and I. When we begin to hear that he wants to exchange my bondage for his freedom, he wants to exchange my addiction for his freedom, there is a part of us that falls on our knees and says, yes, Lord, please. And there's another part of us that says, no, 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 I can't do that. I'm afraid of it. And we run away from it. 
This is why it's, it's not uncommon at all, especially for a person stuck in a cycle of addiction. They will hear a message about how Jesus brings freedom, about how Jesus brings life. They'll read a book. They'll hear a story. And something in their heart rises up and says, yes, I want that. And simultaneously, something else rises up and says, no, that's horrible. That's terrifying. We can't go down that road. And sometimes the evil inside of you is more aware of the power of Christ than you are. And it knows it can't win, so it tries to get you to run away. And in our fear, we begin to run away from the only source of freedom that we have. Sigmund Freud was a a well-known neurologist and and saw thousands and thousands of patients. And he began to notice that there were certain patients who just would not get well. That they would be able to identify the problem. They could find the traumas that had led to these behaviors, to these patterns of thought. They could prescribe a course of treatment that they had watched work for lots of other people. And yet for a a certain group of people, they just, it, it was like they just refused to get well almost. Freud put it this way. He said, there is a force which defends itself with all its means against healing and definitely wants to cling to the illness and to the suffering. Freud's writing from a a medical perspective, and yet he's making a theological statement. There is a force inside of you that when you're confronted with freedom, tries to cling to your sin. And and that force that's at work is the enemy of your soul who comes to kill and steal and destroy. And because he knows once Jesus shows up, my days are numbered, he tries to get us to run as far and as fast away as we can. And he begins to inspire fear. He begins to tell the addict, hey, you've left your home. You've burned your relationships with your parents. You've burned all those bridges with your employers. You're not going to get a job anyways. Nobody wants to be around you. Nobody wants to have anything to do with you. And so even if Jesus sets you free, he's setting you free into a miserable life where everyone hates you because of everything you've done. And oftentimes the addict will believe those lies of fear and will choose to stay in their addiction because the uncertainty is just too much for them. You see it in relationships where a husband and wife have coexisted in a really a pretty miserable marriage, sometimes for 5, 10, 20, 30 years. And the spirit begins to lead and begins to speak, and, and God begins to tell them, I'm calling you out of this. I'm going to turn your hearts back towards each other. I'm going to restore the love you have. You're going to love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, and you start to think, I don't know. And the enemy comes and says, you can't have that. That marriage is for other people. If you try to get from where you are over to there, you're going to have to have some hard conversations. You're going to have to admit to your friends and family that your marriage has been kind of a facade for decades. You're going to have to have some hard conversations with your spouse of, hey, the reason we haven't connected is because of this that's going on in me, because of that that's going on in you. You're going to have to maybe sit down with your, with your kids who might be grown at this point and say, hey, things haven't been good for a long time. And in the process, you're shattering all of these misconceptions that people have, and you decide it's not worth the risk. And so we'll just stay in this marriage where we're basically just kind of coexisting until one of us dies. And again and again and again, in so many different ways, Jesus comes to bring freedom. The enemy inspires fear, and we run away from our source of freedom. But Jesus loves us far too much to let us stay in our fear and to let us stay in our bondage. He comes to us again and again and again. We see it in his response to this man. This man says, son of God, don't torture me. Jesus' response is not, man, get out of here. Come back when you have some more faith. 
You don't know who I am. You don't even know what I've come to do. Torture you? I've come to heal you. He doesn't respond with any of that. He just continues on with his freedom work. That man's only job is to stay where he is until Jesus sets him free. And when you come to Jesus in your bondage, it's not on you to break free of the chains. It's not on you to change all the behaviors. It's your job to stay in that position of surrender until Jesus sets you free. And he always sets you free. So you keep reading this story and you see that Jesus kind of changes the conversation. He's no longer talking to the man. He begins to talk to the spirits inside of him. Verse 9, it says, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Now, there's so much going on in that passage. We could literally spend a couple weeks just looking at that. Right, there are some, some horrifically sad choices that are made there. There are people who see this man who's been tormented, afflicted for years, set free by Jesus, and their response is to say, can you leave? I mean, who does that? Who looks at the freedom Jesus offers and says, no, we don't, we don't want that. Please, go away. There's a couple things, though. We don't have time for all of it, so we're just going to hit two real quick. First of all, Jesus sends the demons into the pigs. It seems like a really weird thing to do. And yet he is making a profound statement, not only about the value of that man, but he's foreshadowing his own death and the value of each one of us. The first statement he makes is that the, the value of one person is worth more than all the wealth of the world. 2,000 pigs rep represented a tremendous amount of wealth. And it's likely that that herd was not owned by one person, but that it was a collection of smaller groups. They were all under the care of a couple shepherds. So this represents multiple people losing something. And what Jesus is trying to teach that region and those people and teaching us as well is that his primary concern in life is for people more than for anything else in all of creation. And he continues to declare the same thing over you. He lays his life down. So if you're sitting here thinking this morning, who am I that God would want to bring freedom to me? All I've done is screw up. All I've done is got it wrong. Why would he keep coming to me? Well, last week, Good Friday and Easter, we celebrated why. Because Jesus decided your life was worth his life. That you, in the middle of your mess, in the middle of your filthiness, in the middle of your bondage and your addiction, he comes to die for you, and it's a statement of the value God has for you. The freedom Jesus brings, though, is also kind of painted for us here in this little picture of he sends them into the pigs so that the man knows this is a permanent freedom. And he sends them into the pigs so they cannot come back into the man. He doesn't just expel the demons and now they're kind of left wondering and ready to reenter the moment that Jesus leaves. The freedom that Jesus brings to you is both permanent and valuable. 
He doesn't come to help you manage your sinful behaviors. He comes to set you free from them. He doesn't come to help you live more righteously in your bondage, but he comes to make you perfectly righteous just as he is. It is a permanent and lasting. It doesn't mean you'll never be tempted again, but it does mean these things no longer have their hooks in you and will no longer reside over you or or bind you in any way. It's permanent and it's valuable. And as we begin to experience this freedom, it changes us completely. We can see this with the man. Not only is he there dressed and in his right mind, but it says in verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go down with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for them, and all the people were amazed. It's understandable that this guy wants to go with Jesus, right? His life without Jesus has been miserable. It's been awful. Jesus shows up. He's set free. The response of his friends, his family, his neighbors is is terrible. So, of course, he says, Jesus, just let me go with you. I'm, I'm done with these people. I'm done with this place. Wherever you go, I'll go. Whatever you do, I'll do. And Jesus' response is, no, go home. Go home. Go home and tell everyone how much the Lord has done for you. What we have here in Mark chapter 5 is the commissioning of the first evangelist. It's not one of the disciples. It's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's not Peter. It's not Judas. It's not any of these guys. It's this demon-possessed man who's been set free. And what Jesus begins to teach us is that in that process of moving from bondage to freedom, he is giving us a freedom story to tell. And your freedom story is always the most powerful in your home, in your hometown, in your home church, in your office, or in your school. In the spaces where people knew you at your worst, the transformation shines the brightest. And so our job is to tell our stories. But our response a lot of times is, my story's kind of embarrassing. I did some stuff I'm not proud of. I engaged in some behaviors that I don't actually want people to know about. We don't don't want to tell the story of how bad our marriage was because our kids don't know. I don't want to tell people I was broke because that would damage my reputation as a businessman. I don't want to tell people that I was addicted. I don't want to tell people I was engaged in all these kind of activities. And so thank you, Lord, for my freedom. And maybe one day I'll tell one person, but only if they promise not to tell anyone else. And and when we begin to engage in those types of behaviors, we are perpetuating the lie that no one else suffers like we suffer. As you start to tell your freedom story, what you will find is not a bunch of other people who are disgusted with you. As you begin to say, this is what I struggled with. This is the battle that I fought. This is the addiction I couldn't overcome. This was the state of my relationships. This was the state of my finances. This is how my family had been ruined. This is the way that I was abused. This is the way that I have suffered. These are the harms that I inflicted on other people. But Jesus has saved me from those. As you tell those stories, you are not going to hear, you're disgusting. Our kids can't hang out anymore. We're canceling our vacation with you because we just don't believe. What you're going to hear is, me too. Me too. You're going to hear, hey, do you mind meeting with my son and telling him that story? He really needs to hear it. 
Do you mind meeting with my wife and letting her know there's hope? She really needs to hear it. Do, do you mind telling this guy, that guy, hey, I met somebody the other day who's hurting just like you are. Can you share that story with them? As we tell our freedom stories, it gives life and it gives hope to others. And so in the process of bringing us freedom, Jesus is also reminding us of our identity. We are his sons, we are his daughters, and we now have a responsibility to others to share with them the freedom that we've found. Kyle Bailey is a, a member of Christian Chapel, a, a young man who grew up here that, that many of us have known for a long time. Uh, he came in a couple weeks ago to tell us his freedom story. And so we want to share that with you, and then we're going to give us a chance to respond to what God is saying to us this morning. So I grew up in the church my whole life. I was homeschooled, so I had a very Christian background through everything, but I never had a knowledge of the reality of God my whole life. Well, I started going to the International House of Prayer University. I did one year there, but not having a foundation or anything, it was kind of like trying to jump into a, a Bible-centered environment with no actual desire to pursue it. I was kind of just going through the motions. I never had any purpose in being there. I was just sitting in the room looking good. So I finished my first year of school. Um, I came back home and worked for a small amount of time, but it was the same issue of not having a foundation in anything. So I was attempting to do the right things and trying to basically just for everything to look good to my family and everything. I wasn't actually, I really didn't have any direction or purpose at all. Eventually I just got tired of being in an environment where everybody else seemed to have the knowledge that they needed and have the, the purpose that they needed. And I felt kind of left out. So I just separated myself and went to Kansas City to be around the people that I thought were my friends, the people that I thought were enjoyable to be around. It definitely started with um, a big issue with lust, which is based in addiction, and then after that, probably because of that, I dealt with anxiety, severe anxiety a lot, which probably led into not, acknowledge, not acknowledging that I was dealing with depression, which just a whole lot of issues, which led into addiction. I was addicted to meth for about two and a half years, and the biggest issue that came out of that was my own, I mean, hate, literally hating myself because it was having grown up in this kind of environment, in a Christian environment, and then just completely giving up on that. I would just try to keep myself numb and not think about the fact that like I was disappointing my parents or not think about the fact that I was almost flunking out of college. And it's just one lack of acknowledgement after the other. I really had lost my own personal identity. I just, I didn't really, I didn't talk to my family at all. I didn't talk to my parents. I didn't talk to anybody that I had known previously. I kind of just kept trying to start over, trying to live a life in the world and really just participating in everything that the world had to offer, and it was really just killing myself. Well, my addiction cost me my relationship with my family for a consecutive amount of years. I had lost what my, what I thought my job, what my like goal for life was gonna be coming out of high school. I pretty much just gave up all of it. I gave up my relationship with my family, with my friends. Once I started acknowledging all of my issues, like having an issue with lust, and having an issue with anxiety, having an issue with fear, and, um, having an issue with addiction, once I started dealing with those things and acknowledging it, it was like having clarity of mind to be able to actually be a normal person and not feel like a, a reject. And I guess I would say that that was when my Friday started, when I realized that like, I felt like God was literally calling me out of what I wanted to do with my life and just waste my time saying like, no, you're not made to be in that kind of world. Like I've made you for something different. And when I made the steps to start speaking scripture over my life, what I could remember, that's when I felt like I opened the door to God and it was like, water that was coming in just washing all the stuff away when I first felt a bit of shift in my life that was definitely like the first moment when I was like oh I want to come home because I have I've noticed that 
Like, I'm dead, so I want to be alive. Um, but something that my mom had said to me was that you don't go from Friday to Sunday instantly. Like, that Saturday is where most of the work gets put in. And that I had to, now that I had been made, now that I had acknowledged that I'd been made different and I'd been made clean, I had to start living it and walking it out, even in that situation, because you can't just come home and be like, oh, everything's fine. Like, I'm out of addiction, I'm free, that's great. But you have to actually make the change yourself. You actually have, you have to actually do something with the change that has been made in you. Actively making the right choices and like stopping my own addiction, just giving things up, not, I mean, even just watching my language and watching the things that I would do and say and realizing that a stronghold is just something that like once you root it out, you can't let it get back in something like once you root it out you have to throw it away and once I had thrown things off and like given up my addiction and living differently I mean I guess I would say that was the Saturday was putting in the work with the with the change that I knew had been instilled in my heart and act actively being made whole actively being a Christian actively being righteous I would say that addiction doesn't have to be a stronghold in anyone's life that it's something that's so simple as a matter of once you make that first choice to step away, the second choice is twice as easy, and the third choice to, to get out of it is even easier. And once you start making that change, the people who aren't in that kind of environment will notice, and people are always willing to help, that you just have to prove, even in a, in a small amount, that you're willing to, to put in the work by yourself to get away from that kind of environment. I know that God has a plan for me. I know that God has a plan for you. Whenever we consistently make the right choices, whenever you keep yourself in the Word, God makes himself known. He's not going to just leave any person in their addiction or in their struggles. Once you go to God, God will come to you. My name is Kyle Bailey, and I exchanged addiction for freedom. Thanks, Kyle, for sharing your story with us. Kyle leaves next Sunday. Uh, he's enlisted in the United States Army and has taken off for boot camp and chasing that new path that God has for him. We are incredibly proud of you and, and also thankful to you for sharing your story with us this morning. Um, but I know even, even as we hear that, some of us have that response of, good for him, not for me. Maybe if I was young like that, I could do it. Maybe if my addiction was like his addiction, I could do it. But mine is different. It's more wound up in my heart. It's went on longer. Or maybe I'm, it's not that bad, so I think it's okay. I can kind of deal with it. But, but already this morning, you begin to feel the pain of that. You identify with the man in Mark chapter 5 who, even as he kneels at Jesus' feet, hoping to be free, he's filled with terror that freedom might not actually be for him. One of the lies that the enemy tells us is that you're never going to have freedom like Kyle because you're not wired like he is. You're never going to have freedom like the man in Mark chapter 5 because you're not as tormented as he was. Kyle's story can't be your story. The man in Mark 5, his story can't be your story. And he's going to tell you that again and again and again. But what you have to learn is Kyle's story isn't Kyle's story. The man in Mark 5, his story isn't his story. Every freedom story is a Jesus story. Every freedom story is about his power. It's about his grace. It's about his mercy being extended to people who do not deserve it. And so your hope has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. On our Wednesday nights during Lent this year, uh, Danny Iskrig spoke one night, and he shared this idea from Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian that has just stuck with me. 
He said, when freedom is close, the chains begin to hurt. Why does a man cry out in terror? Because freedom's there. Why does the addict say, no, 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 I I can't go home? Because freedom is there. And as Jesus comes and he begins to expand your heart, begin to expand your eyes, you start to stretch out and those chains that have bound you begin to dig into you. But the pain is not a sign to quit. It's a sign that the chains don't belong. So if you'll stand up with me, I want to pray with us. I want to to drive this home in our hearts and in our minds. Bow your heads, close your eyes with me. And will you, if you're physically able, will you take your elbows and just pin them in there against your side? And now take your hands and put them together and and open your palms to, to face heaven. And I want you just to imagine for a moment, whatever your addiction, whatever your bondage is, you know it, and in your soul right now, you feel it. And it feels like chains that are surrounding you. You don't see a way out. This morning, Jesus is not asking you to break free. He's asking you to surrender and to stay where you are until he brings freedom. And as his spirit begins to fill your soul and begins to fill your mind, your arms are going to want to push out from your body. They're going to want to begin to raise towards heaven, but you can't yet because you're still in that bondage. You are still held fast by your addictions. And in that space, God is not angry. He is not disappointed, but he is coming in love and power to set you free. He's going to do for you what you can never do for yourself. And and physically, I want you to see what that's going to be like. Take your hands now and lift them up as high and as fast as you can. Because this is the freedom Jesus brings. It is complete and it is total. He breaks every chain. So Jesus, we come. And we pray that your spirit would be set loose against every addiction. Lord, that you would break every chain of bondage. I pray that your truth would confront every lie. That those who think there's no hope, they think they've been here and they've tried it before. That today, Lord, they would commit, I'm going to stay where I am until Jesus sets me free. I'm just going to surrender again and again and again and again. And Lord, we believe this morning you're going to break every chain. I believe you're going to break chains that are ruining marriages. You're going to break chains that are robbing us of our future. You're going to break chains that are keeping us in our shame and in our bondage. Jesus, today you're delivering from addiction. Today you are breaking curses that have clung to our families for generations. Lord, you are bringing freedom, and we're going to stay here until you do it. I'm going to ask our prayer team, if you guys will come to the front, we want to give us a, a chance to respond. If you're in a space this morning and you know those chains are tight and you can't do anything, just as a a demonstration of your desire for freedom, our prayer team's going to be here, our pastors, our staff, you guys, if you'll come up and make your way. Don't stay in your bondage. Don't run away in fear, but run towards the one who brings freedom to you. If you're tired of the chains, if you're tired of the addictions, if you're tired of the bondage, if you're tired of the lies, if you're tired of not being able to move forward, your response today is surrender. 
So come now. They're, they're ready. They're willing to pray for you. Jesus, we pray that as people respond, you would break every chain. Lord, break chains in our hearts, in our minds. Break chains in our bodies. Everything that holds us back for you, Lord, we surrender to you. We pray that you would come in your power and in your might. Jesus, come. Bring freedom to us.
Yeah. 
comes to bring complete and total freedom. And that freedom isn't just here, but it has already gone before you. He not only breaks the chains in your heart, but he breaks the chains of every temptation that tries to trip you up as you walk in the new life he's provided for you. His freedom isn't just inside you, but it's over you, it's, it's under you, it surrounds you, it goes before you, and it comes behind you. What he promises and he brings, he continues to guard and protect. So as you leave, may you walk in that freedom. Our prayer is that your homes become a place of peace and love. That your jobs and your schools become atmospheres where you experience and tell about the freedom that Christ has brought for you. My final encouragement to you as you leave this morning is do not give in to a spirit of fear that tells you you can't tell others about your weakness, you can't tell others about your pain, you can't tell others about your addiction. You have to come to the space where you're willing to care more about the freedom Jesus offers than you do what other people think of you. So as you leave this morning, there's still an opportunity for you. You can go out the back doors and to your left. Some of our pastors and prayer team members will be waiting to pray those freedom prayers with you. Some of you, you need to be even more intentional this week. You're going to have to reach out to a friend, a family member. And in that process of confession, you're going to find a freedom that you've never known before. But don't give in to the fear. Surrender to the freedom. Let Jesus do what he has promised to do in your life. Thank you for worshiping him with us. May you go in his grace, his peace. May you walk in the freedom and share it with others. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.